This morning I want to talk a lot about growth, and it's good to be back with you after our extended vacation. And vacations have a lot of opportunities for growth, right? Being trapped in a car for, for hours on end. At one point we were trapped in our car sitting on the freeway behind a propane spill for six hours. And it was a small rental car. And my kids aren't as small as they used to be. And, and I still have three kids. Everyone survived. And so this was a growth moment that is evidence of growth. But um, just, just a lot of neat, neat things from vacation. When I got back and this week in the office on my screensaver, I have my old pictures going. And it was cycling through pictures from vacation four years ago up the coast and three years ago. And it's amazing how much my kids have grown in three or four years right? And, and those of you that are moms and dads, three, four years make a huge difference. Yeah, a huge difference, especially when you're dealing with the, the infant or toddler or, or elementary school age. Three, four years is huge. And I look back and I'm like, oh, how cute. They were so tiny. And um, not to them, except one's hearing it now. <laughs> but it was amazing to see the difference between those vacations and this vacation. And just even in their ability to handle things, there were things we did this vacation that we never would have done four years ago or done if Susie knew about them. Um, (laughs) Things like hanging off the side of a cliff over a thousand foot drop on a hike or um, rafting through whitewater in, in little individual kayaks, things that I would have never done four years ago. And it's evidence of that growth that happens, right? that they are growing and maturing and able to handle more. Even their questions were were different this trip than those trips. You know, back then it's like, are we there yet? Well, that one still happened. Um, But but maybe it's, what's that? Or why is there a bridge? Or or, um, what's going on with it? Just real simple questions before. This time we're walking along a hike and one of my kids said, so, Dad, why did God create us if he knew we were going to sin? Okay, we're into the light questions now. <laughs> and we spent time talking about that and, and all kinds of other relational things that would have never happened for you. And it's a good thing, right? Now, now was it consistent? No. There was also like, like what does fire do to certain bodily functions and questions like that that only happen in junior high. And, um, <laughs> but the goal here is maturity. The goal is growth, right? And, and not just for my kids, but for all of us, we're growing to maturity. We're growing to a stable, mature relationship with God that is useful for the kingdom. That God is, is ready to, to use us as His tools, as His hands and feet for what He wants to do. Today, as we come to Luke chapter 2, we get an interesting set of stories and we've grouped all of Jesus' childhood together. And so we're going to go from from 40 days after his birth until 12 and actually beyond. This is going to cover all the way to the start of his ministry, all the way to to 27 or 30, depending on how you date Jesus' ministry. And we're going to do all that today. And, And really, Luke has two different purposes in these texts. And one of his purposes is to show us the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus was a real child He was a real little boy. He really grew. He really lived on earth. And Luke, as one of his themes, shows us his humanity over and over. Along with that, he's going to reaffirm his deity. So we're going to see the dual nature of God. That's the theology of of the text today. 
But also, as we talked about the questions, we said always ask, what is God doing in salvation? Or what can we learn about God? That's the theology. But then we always ask with narratives, especially the Gospels, what can we learn from the characters in the story? What can we learn from the example of Jesus? And what we're going to see today is Luke is stressing that Jesus grew. And that seems like a simple, trite point. But that is huge when you think of the God of the universe incarnated as man and he grew in maturity. And if we're to follow his example, we need to be growing into maturity. Now, now, here, here's the thing. We could check out today. Most of you could check out today and say, you know what? Okay, this is going to be a great sermon. We have a lot of 18 and unders in here. So they're going to love this and I can just sit and enjoy this morning. Don't we all need to grow? Anyone here arrived? You have it down. Because we could talk later and we'll look at some other scriptures. Uh, No, we're all in process, right? And in fact, growth is the process of coming into what we would consider mature spiritual adulthood. And none of us are there yet. In fact, in the stories today, Luke is going to give us a story of the young married couple in, in Mary and Joseph. He's going to give us a story of those near the end of their life in Simeon and Anna. And he's going to give us Jesus growing from infancy to adulthood. And we're going to see an example of maturity in each one of them. Now this, I think, is such a pertinent issue. And some of you have heard me rant a little bit about the concept of adulting. And and adulting is a new verb that we're using to say, I acted like an adult today. And I think you are an adult. This should not be news. This is what you are. And, and, but, but we have this word adulting and, and before some of you that are, are younger think, oh, I'm picking on you. I actually think this is indicative of our society as a whole. Because I think society as a whole, we have become so accustomed to personal satisfaction and I want what I want and I want comfort and I want convenience that I want the benefits of being an adult, the respect and and getting to do what I want without doing the work and the effort because I don't like doing work and effort for anything. And that spans from the seventh graders we have in here to the retirees we have in here. It's what we are fighting in our culture. So the title today is Stop Sometimes Adulting and Be an Adult. Because when we think of adulting, we think of doing these these certain things that somehow make us feel like an adult for a time without embracing the, the realization that that is who I am. Now, I know some of you in your, in your Facebook posts have used the word adulting. I'm not picking on you. But this is my rant uh, of, of just a larger segment of society that that our youth are struggling to grow up and adolescence is going further and further now 25 30 is still considered late adolescence and that's ridiculous it's ridiculous because we are called to follow christ's example and grow up and we're called to do that in every area of life as we're going to see it with jesus christ Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. 
We're going to see these examples and we're going to see these stories of Jesus' childhood. Now, now this is all we have of Jesus' childhood, um, the Gospels. And combine that with Matthew and you have the story of the Magi. We don't get a lot. And now, now some of the apocryphal accounts have all these fanciful images of Jesus doing all these miracles or getting angry at his playmates and killing them or, or just different. All of that's bunk. We go with what the Gospels say and God has chosen not to give us a lot of details. I can remember going into to work back when I was working at a computer company and, and one of the guys that was there was from India and he knew I was a Christian and, and I knew he wasn't and we talked about it every week. And, and one week he came in and said, you know, those years between Jesus when he was t- between 12 and 30, I know where he was. I'm like, really? Do tell. He goes, he was in India. He was studying Buddhism. They found a document in India where someone said he was there studying and, and he was training to come back, uh, come back to Israel. And these are the kinds of stories out there because sometimes we want to fill in the missing pieces. We have all the pieces we need. There was no truth to that. There was no substance to the, to the documents he was mentioning. But somehow he wanted to claim that Jesus was part of his religion. And that's a whole other topic. But we come to Luke chapter 2, 22 through 52. And I want to look at these both from the theology and from the example that is set. The first section, verses 22 to 24, and point number one in your notes, Mary and Joseph set an example of maturity through faithfulness to God. And in each of our points, we'll look at what the, the story says, and then we'll look at, okay, what does this say by way of example for us growing up and maturing in our faith? And we start to read in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, being Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And and a a couple of things here. They're still in Bethlehem at this point, five, six miles south of Jerusalem. Up doesn't mean north. Up means up in elevation. And everything in Israel goes up to Jerusalem. And uh, there's a couple of ceremonies that we're going to see in these verses The first is that by Jewish law, a a mom who had given birth was considered unclean for 33 days after circumcision or about 40 days after the birth of the child. She wasn't allowed to go into the temple. She wasn't allowed to touch anything holy. And then at 40 days after the birth, you came and you you gave an offering and you purified yourself. And that was part of how the law specified you became clean again, ritually clean after birth. And so that's one of the ceremonies we're seeing here. The other ceremony we're seeing here goes on in the next verse. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And that's 22 and 23 there. Whenever you had a firstborn, you were to bring him to the temple and present him to the Lord. Um, In in the vein of Samuel and, and what Hannah did with Samuel. And, and again, you, you would take your firstborn and, and you would redeem him because the, the firstborns belong to the Lord. And so you'd pay five shekels of, of, to the temple and that would redeem your firstborn as a way of honoring God with this gift of a firstborn. And so that, this is just sort of setting the scene, okay? So they're in Bethlehem. They, they've done the whole manger thing and the shepherd thing. And, and Mary and Joseph have, have had this incredible experience, Right? And now life gets back to normal a little bit, settles down. And what, what's going to happen? And, and, and Mary's, we, we know that, it, it, that Luke keeps saying she pondered these things in her heart. 
And she's mulling this over and probably thinking through what the shepherds came and said and remembering what Gabriel said to her coming on early on and Joseph is sharing and she's remembering Elizabeth. That's a lot to process. And, And we see them obeying the law still and coming 40 days after his birth and coming to the temple for cleansing, coming to present Jesus to the Lord. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two pigeons. And what's interesting to me is Luke, as a master storyteller, is drawing us in to this couple and he's showing that they are faithful even in the little things. They're faithful to the law. They're faithful to what God has asked them to do. Now, it might be tempting if you gave birth to the Messiah to say, I I am clean. He's the Messiah. I'm, I'm the mom. I'm the dad of the Messiah. I don't have to do those things anymore. But we see their humility. We see their obedience. They were faithful in the middle of this whirlwind of activity. And so they come, and and we know from their sacrifice, a pair of turtle doves or or two young pigeons, that this is a poor family because in in the Old Testament it says you're to offer a lamb or a dove or a pigeon. If you're poor, you can just offer two birds instead of the lamb. And so we see, again, Luke is is coming into the human element, saying this isn't your your ritzy royal family. This is a family from, from Nazareth, Podunk Nazareth. They've gone to Podunk Bethlehem but they're still coming to obey with everything they can. And with the money they they are able, and with the sacrifice they're able. And they're consecrating their firstborn to the Lord. And we see their spiritual lives as they obey the law. And this is set up for Luke. This This is a reminder of who Joseph and Mary are. Now think in in terms of growth, think of who God chose to place his son with. He chose to place his son with a husband and wife who loved God and were devoted to serving him. It's not that difficult. It's not that complicated. Love God. Be devoted to serving him. And these were the parents that were going to teach Jesus. This was the the parents who was going to sit at their feet and hear the Torah and learn Jewish history. And they were faithful. When I think of the, the theology, Luke here is just really zeroing in and, and honing in that Jesus was fully human. He came for the full human experience. And as we study the theme of, of the, the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ, both are absolutely essential to our salvation. Jesus had to be fully man because without being fully man, he can't die to save man. He can't die in man's place. So he has to be fully man. One of the other reasons of of why the the full experience from birth to death is what Hebrews says, that he was in all points tempted as we are. If he came for a couple hours crucified and rose from the dead, that's not being all points tempted as we are. And so Jesus lived the full experience of human life to die for our sins, to be an example of how to live for God. And then Luke is also zeroing in on these people who were faithful in every little thing. 
when I think of, of how to apply this to becoming an adult, to growing, and, and the example that they have and that we, we have for who was going to raise Jesus is that spiritual adults do the ordinary things faithfully. Spiritual adults do the ordinary things faithfully. This means they're an adult every moment of every day. They do the things they're supposed to do. Mary and Joseph were supposed to go to the temple. They did because that's what you do as a follower of God and as a mature follower of God. So many times we can get caught up into thinking, I need to do something extraordinary for God to be noticed. Whereas God wants ordinary faithfulness. He uses that. You know, when, when, when I think of spiritual maturity and what spiritual adults do, it's those ordinary things even today that, that are so indicative of where someone is at in their walk with God. You know, are we, are we in the Word every day? Think about that for a minute. Is that that complicated? No. And everyone's like, oh, he's not just talking to the youth. It's a sign of spiritual maturity to be disciplined enough to be in the Word every day. Are we in prayer every day? We know these things are commanded by Scripture. We know that God wants us because He wants relationship with us. But these are the ordinary things to be faithful in that that shows maturity. Are we consistent in, in, in coming to the assembling of believers? You know, so some of the stats I'm reading and some of the things coming out is, is that on average now people consider church attendance and regular church attendance two to two and a half times a month. That is not regular church attendance. Imagine if in my family I said, I'm going to be with you about half the time in a month and we're going to be a close family. If I told Susie, I'm going to see you Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then I'm just not going to really worry about you the rest of the week. (laughs) That's good, right? (laughs) But yet we do that to our church family. We, We do that and we think it because we're so busy with other things, and again, we're pursuing comfort and convenience and what interests us instead of what is responsible and, and, and what God has instructed us to do. We need our church family. I need my church family. This, this isn't just you. This is me too. I need to come and, and be encouraged. We need to worship together. There is nothing like hearing 200 voices sing together. Thank you, worship team, by the way. Wonderful worship today. There is something that God has ordained that happens to us spiritually when we are together with His family. And that's why He says, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together. And so these simple things are evidences of spiritual maturity. That's what I see in Joseph and Mary. They're they're going, and we're going to see that in the next passage too. They're going to the temple. They're doing what they should do. They're raising Jesus to follow God. We can learn by that example. We go on as we, we hit the next verse, verse 25, and we see a, a couple of, of, of people come onto the scene that are, are later in life, and in their, their maturity, they are now investing in Joseph and Mary. They are, they are confirming in Joseph and Mary who this child is. And by God's, I think God's grace, 
when he puts us in situations that are difficult, he keeps reaffirming and he keeps encouraging. And he's using Simeon and Anna for that now. So the second section, God uses, used righteous, faithful, older individuals who hadn't checked out to instruct and confirm to Joseph, Mary, and us that Jesus was the Messiah. I know, it's a really long point. But digest it. Chew on it a little bit. There just wasn't anything there I wanted to to get rid of. God used righteous, faithful, older individuals, you're going to see that with both of them, who hadn't checked out to instruct and confirm to Joseph, Mary, and through Scripture to us that Jesus was the Messiah. I imagine that was helpful to them. Forty days later, things are dying down. It's a little overwhelming to raise God. But God in His grace is giving that encouragement. 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem, and, and, and we'll go through this section pretty quickly. We've talked about it before, but now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, a pretty common name. And this man was righteous and devout. And we see right from the start what kind of character he was, he, he had. He was, he was righteous. He was following God. He was faithful. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And when you see that phrase, consolation of Israel, we're like, I'm not sure what that means. It really means comfort. It's it's a phrase that was used of the coming Messiah, that there would be a Messiah that would save us. Remember Isaiah? This passage is going to just ooze with Isaiah and our, 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 our study of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 started, comfort, comfort, O Israel as he talks about the coming Messiah. And that's where this idea came of the consolation of Israel, is there's a Messiah coming. And so we see this man, Simeon, who was looking expectantly and excitedly for the Messiah. He's righteous, he's waiting for the Messiah, he's looking for the Messiah, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. One of the themes we see throughout Luke is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, second time Holy Spirit's mentioned, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or or the, the Messiah of the Lord, Yahweh's chosen instrument of redemption. And he came in the Spirit, third time the Spirit's mentioned, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, they're being faithful, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and he goes on to prophesy and encourage. And so get the picture here. Mary and Joseph, they're being faithful. They've come up from Bethlehem not too long, five, six miles, and they come into the temple. I think the the court of the Gentiles here, maybe the court of women, definitely not further because Mary was, was with them. And they're walking along with Jesus, minding their own business, and this guy comes up and takes the Messiah out of their hands. Now, a little bit of conjecture there. I don't know how it happened. Maybe he came up and asked. We don't, we don't have that recorded. But what was interesting is the Holy Spirit was moving, and so they let this happen. And Simeon takes Jesus in his arms. The consolation, the Messiah that he has been waiting for for years and years, that he has been longing for, And I can just imagine his heart welling up with emotion. I am holding the Messiah of Israel. God has not abandoned us. He is here. 
And he goes on to prophesy. First, to, to, to give a blessing, a blessing to the Lord. This is the, the last infant narrative song we have, and we have a number of songs here, and this is the last one that is a blessing, a song. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, as he's holding the Prince of Peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. This man says, I can die now. I can die happy now. His bucket list had one thing on it. See the Messiah. That kind of single focus we see as the maturity in Simeon. That, that, that love for God. That desire for God. And then we see the theme of salvation and our certain salvation out of Luke that, that he says that you, I have, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples. And he's getting excited about salvation. Some of us have been saved a long time. And salvation is a given. Oh, we need to be excited about salvation. We need to be excited just as much today as we were the day Jesus first saved us. Because salvation is that incredible and that undeserved. Nothing you and I have done have earned that salvation. It is by the grace of God and the work of Jesus on the cross that we are saved. That should amaze us just as it did Simeon. And he's at the beginning. He's seeing it happen. One of the other themes you see there is in in those verses that you've prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And we see the theme of that salvation is for everyone. It's for the Gentiles. It's for all peoples. It's for Israel. It's for anyone that will believe. We are equal at the foot of the cross. We are equally in need of Jesus at the foot of the cross. As Pastor Andrew talked about last week, there is no room for prejudice. There is no room for racism because we all need a Savior and we all are equal at the foot of the cross. Simeon reminds us of that. This is prepared for all peoples, a light for the Gentiles, glory for the people of Israel. And we see Mary and Joseph's response. And his father and his mother marveled as, as what was said about him. The idea there is they were amazed. They were like, wow, what is God doing? And they knew Isaiah too, and they knew the prophecies. And so they would have thought, as, as Simeon's talking to Isaiah 42, where it says, I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. They would have said, he just talked about a light to the nations. They would have remembered Isaiah 52, break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for Yahweh has comforted his people. The consolation. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nations and the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And the story with Luke's storytelling is unfolding a little bit more and a little bit more. And now we see the extent of salvation. We see the ties to Isaiah that this is the Messiah. And, and this becomes another milestone for Joseph and Mary, a wow moment where God used this, this, this man in later stages of life in his maturity to encourage this young couple. 
You know, we, we, we went on vacation. We went through a number of places in Utah. It was sort of our Utah trip and straight a little bit into Arizona. Never again, but no, just kidding. For, for all the car troubles, Susie's like, I don't like Arizona. But the Grand Canyon was nice. But, but a couple places were really interesting. Bryce, if you've ever been to Bryce National Park in the Grand Canyon, you're driving along and, and you don't see much. You see trees. And, and trees are really cool, but they're trees. And, and a little bit of hills, and you're like, I thought this was the Grand Canyon. Or at Bryce, you know, where are these hoodoos everyone's talking about? And then in both cases, you come over a little crest, right? And it's like, whoa! And at Bryce, you have the amphitheater, and, and everywhere you come over the crest, you get this just incredible view with this incredible backdrop that looks like somebody painted it instead of its real life. And then the Grand Canyon, in the same thing, we came over this, this rim and the kids are like, wow, that's big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's why they call it the Grand Canyon. <laughs> and, and it was this, this mouth-dropping moment as more of, of the, the scenery was revealed. And that's a little bit of what I think is happening here as Luke reveals a little bit more through Simeon a little bit more through Anna. And he's revealing this incredible plan of salvation by God. And that's where 33 and his father and mother marveled at what they had said about them. It's that kind of marveling at the work of God. Simeon goes on then to prophesy. His prophecy wasn't necessarily what they wanted to hear, but it was what God knew they needed to hear. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. It's not that everyone's going to follow him, Simeon's prophesying. Some are going to oppose him. Some are going to fall because of him because they won't see their sin and their need for a Messiah. They won't recognize who he is. Oh, that's true today. When we don't recognize what Jesus has done for us and that he is our Messiah and that we need him. And that's the fall of many. But he's also appointed to the, the rise of many. And that's those that follow him. And, and he brings them into relationship with the Father. And he'll be a sign that is to be opposed. And then to Mary, he says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And Mary is going to have to go through some pain as she watches her son be crucified, as she watches people persecute him and reject him. No mom wants to see that. But it's for the bigger purpose that many hearts may be revealed, that there will be salvation for all. Simeon's words for Joseph and Mary were, God has a purpose for this child. This is part of his plan of salvation. This is the Messiah. We go on in 36 through 38 to see the, the second illustration with Anna, the, the, the second person that's encouraging them. And Anna was full of thankfulness and she spread the word. I, I love her. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. And so she, she was married for seven years, get this, married for seven years, and then a widow the rest of her life. 
And so if, if, if a young lady got married at 13 or 14, seven years, you're down to 20, 21, 84, you're, you're talking 64 years of widow. And instead of becoming bitter, instead of withdrawing into herself, and it was hard for widows of the time, listen to how she's described. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She decided, I'm going to make my purpose in life to serve God, to worship him. And so she's, she's worshiping in the temple. She's fasting. And so we see a life of discipline, a life of maturity, a life sold out for God. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. And, and so she sees what's going on. And, and some think she even came up while Simeon was there. It's possible, but it was definitely around the same time. And she starts just praising God. This is incredible. Thank you, God, for your redemption. And then she won't shut up. And it's good. She just tells everyone about Jesus. She's contagious. That is a woman sold out for God that doesn't care what people think and is going to serve God. I love it. And so Luke uses these two witnesses to remind us of the deity of Christ, to remind Joseph and Mary of the deity of Christ. He uses a a prophet, a man and a woman, both elderly and then a prophetess, because he's including people from all statuses of life. He's including women. He's including a widow, people that would have been on sort of the outskirts of society. And he's saying God includes them. God uses them. And in those two, we see the power of older adults to encourage, to instruct. We see two older adults that didn't disengage, that stayed serving God, that never retired from the kingdom. And there we can see from their example lessons for for those of us that have been Christians a long time and those that are later in life. Spiritual adults stay engaged in ministry their entire lives. It is so tempting to get to a point and say, I've done my due. I've done my ministry. I spent time in the nursery, did my time, my 20 years, and I got paroled. Ministry never ends. We don't retire from the work of God. In fact, the more life experience you have and the more wisdom you have and the more maturity you have, the more we need you. We need you in every ministry, from nursery. We need you in discipleship. We need you in teaching, whether it's one-on-one or in a class setting. We need your investment. Simeon and Anna are a great example of that, to stay engaged in ministry your entire life, even after retirement. Anne Anne Graham Lotz, Billy Graham's daughter, once recounted a a conversation with her dad. And Billy Graham said uh, about aging, you know, all my life I've been taught how to die, but no one ever taught me how to grow old. And she replied, well, Daddy, you're now teaching all of us. And she went on to recount how what she learned from her dad was that as he got older, the secondary things fell away. The things that weren't important fell away. It was no longer about politics. It was no longer about this sports team or that sports team. 
the primary thing became primary again, and it was the gospel. And what he would say is the primary thing is to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. Incidentally, the two greatest commandments that Jesus said were to follow. And he realized as he matured, everything else was stripped away, but that commitment stayed. What an example. What an example. We go on in verse 39, and we see now a a snippet in, in verse 39 and 40. We see ages 0 to 12, and then we get one insight into to his childhood, and then we see all the way to 27, 30, depending on, on how you count ages. But in 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, again reminding us of their faithfulness, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him simple verses. I bet you've read them many times. I would underline or highlight the word grew. And I I mentioned that at the beginning because that is what Luke is stressing here. In fact, he's going to come back to that in 52 and he's going to sandwich this story with this idea of Jesus grew. He, He was fully man. And we see in this case, we see the first three areas he grew in, right? He grew physically. He became strong. He, he, he was probably working with his dad as a carpenter, or actually the word is more of a builder, probably more of a stonemason in the area. And, and he became strong, and he, he was filled with wisdom, so he grew intellectually and mentally, and the favor of God was upon him. He grew spiritually. And what Luke is painting is that he grew in every area of life. This wasn't the, the Messiah that came and just had it all like that. He went through the full experience. And in verse 41, it, it actually is almost like he, he stops and the favor of God was upon him and he gives us a, an illustration of, of when Jesus was 12 of what that looked like. And then he'll come back to this idea of the areas he's growing in. So we go on and, and we see a snapshot of when Jesus was 12. Do we have any 12-year-olds in here? I know we have one. A couple 12-year-olds in here. This is how old Jesus was, Okay. So catch this when we, not you, John. <laughs> Grow up. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> we catch this. This is the age that he was when this story happens. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Again, this is a testimony to Joseph and Mary's faithfulness. Every person was, was supposed to go to Jerusalem for three feasts out of the year. The Passover, the Festival of Booths, and um, as, they, as time went by, those that didn't have money would only come to one of them, and they always chose the Passover because that was the big one. And so Joseph and Mary every year are coming to the Passover. And it says, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And so they're faithful to God. Now, we have to understand this a little bit. At 13, and, and now we have bar mitzvah. This was before bar mitzvah, though. But still, in their, in their culture, at 13, a boy became a man according to the law. And he could read the Torah, and he could engage in, in, in certain teachings. And so he became responsible under the law at 13. 
And so what they would do is a year or two before, usually a year before at 12, they would especially bring the young men into the temple for some training to get them used to it. So that way at 13, when they come to read the law and be part of things, it's not like, this is all new to me. Um, and so they're bringing him because they want him to follow what God has said. They're, they're teaching him to follow God. And so they come. And he's 12 years old, went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. And so they leave and they left Jesus behind. Now, before you get all judgy, some of you have left your kids here. (laughs) Just saying. It can happen. Yeah, there's confessions going on everywhere. Now, now keep in mind, they would have been, they had been there a week and they would have been leaving in a caravan and the caravan included all kinds of extended family. Tradition hasn't, we don't know what their exact caravan looked like, but often in the caravan, the women and the children would go first and then toward the back and taking care of all the details and and anything that, that was heavier and had to come, the men and the young men would come. Now at 12, where does Jesus fit? At 13, he's in the back. At 12, it's sort of either. It's that in-between age. It's it's junior high. (laughs) Where you're you're a kid, sort of, and you're an adult, sort of, right? My, My junior high leader's like, yeah, okay, I get that now. And so it would have been really easy for Mary to think he's back with Joseph. And for Joseph to think he's up with Mary. Not to mention you have aunts and uncles and cousins and all kinds of of critters. Well, kids. And um, so he could have been anywhere. So they get the first night out. And a day's journey. Now, keep in mind, they're going to Nazareth now. It's about a three-day journey total. A day's journey would have been 20, 25, 26 miles. And they make camp. Mary and Joseph came together. And it's like, hey, where's Jesus? He's with you. Oh, he's with you. Great, we lost the Messiah. <laughs> this is, I, I'm not making light of this. I want us to see this as true. This was a real story. Would a mom and dad be a little concerned if your, your child was missing? Yeah. And when you know that he has a special purpose from God and you've been entrusted with God to his well, well-being? So they turn around and go back. But supposing him to be in the group, they win a day's journey And then they begin to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him, of course. After three days, they found him in the temple. And that doesn't mean that they had to search three days. This is inclusive of the day's journey out, the day's journey back. And then on the third day, they found him. And this is where the story gets really interesting. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And so they come back, and they find him. On the Temple Mount, there was also a synagogue. This was possibly in that synagogue. And the rabbis would be teaching, and this was normal. And and the rabbinic way of teaching is the rabbi would sit, and and the, the disciples or the students around him, and they would do a lot of questions and answers. 
the rabbi would ask questions, the students would ask questions, and, and, and we do that in our teachers, right? Good teachers ask good questions. And so what do you think about this? Or what do you think about this? And, and Jesus is interacting with them. Some think, well, he's putting them in their place. No, this is, this is Jesus being humble and learning. This was the typical way of learning. And so they ask him a question and he's, he's answering and responding back with a question of his own, honest questions, learning, not trying to trap them. And what's interesting is we again see a picture that Jesus is fully human. And, and this gets into some really difficult theology that just blows my mind coming to Philippians 2.7 where it says Jesus emptied himself and became a servant and became a man. And, and the idea there isn't that he stopped being God, but that he voluntarily stopped exercising some of his divine attributes. Was Jesus omniscient? You have to say yes, otherwise he's not fully God. Did Jesus access his omniscience all the time? Now, most scholars use this and say, no, he didn't. Jesus voluntarily did not tap into his omniscience at times. And we know that from other stories. And he learned. He learned like any 12-year-old could learn. Now, without sin and, and in perfection, he could learn a little better than we could. And he could remember things. But he is interacting in a way that shows his humanity and shows his learning. And this is a marvelous picture. My 12-year-olds that are here, this could be you. This kind of understanding, these kinds of questions. And in all my years of youth ministries, I see it. I see that our youth can mature and grow so much quicker than society says. Because you guys are thinking and you guys are processing Scripture, but you've got to be in the Word. You've got to be under the instruction of others and and asking questions. Man, I hope you ask questions that stump your Sunday school teachers today. Ask good questions. (laughs) The teacher's like, oh, I'm going to get you. (laughs) All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Young men and women, you want to be respected? You want people to look up to you? Be faithful to the word of God. Be faithful in your understanding of who God is. It doesn't matter what the latest character of the latest video game is. What matters is who God is and do you understand scripture? Now, I'm not saying you can never have fun and, 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 and never enjoy yourself, but is your focus on God and spiritual things? This isn't just for kids. The, if we want our kids to do it, we need to set that same example. Crave God's Word. Enjoy God's Word. The story goes on. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. That's actually a different word from amazed. It's sort of amazed and frustrated at the same time. (laughs) And his mother said to him, Son, did I get the tone right? Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. The word means pain. And this is a chastisement. 
And make no mistake, Mary wasn't perfect. And she comes and she rebukes Jesus. Why did you do this to us? There was a lot of debate. Did he do this on purpose? Did he do this to hurt us? But no, he didn't do this to hurt his parents. But he was making a point that he is to be about his mission, as we're going to see. And he said to them, Jesus said, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. This is a key statement in Luke chapter 2. These are, by the way, the first recorded words of Jesus. And in his first recorded words, he shows an awareness of who his father is, his deity, and what his mission is. This is powerful. At 12, he knew where he was going and was dedicated to it. He knew that his father was God Almighty. That's a phrase that really was never used in a personal way in the Old Testament. It's the first time in Scripture it's used in this kind of personal way. Did you not know I must be in my father's house? And they didn't understand it. They didn't get it. But then 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And so we see Jesus still in obedience and submission to his parents. He goes to Nazareth. He lives another 18 or so years under the the instruction and tutelage of his parents. And Mary treasures these things up in her heart. And then we see one last verse, which I think is, is a summary verse of this whole section. In verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And the first three are the repeat of of earlier that he grew intellectually. He grew mentally in wisdom. And he, he, he was committed to learning. And if Jesus was committed to learning, we can be committed to learning. He grew physically. He grew spiritually in favor with God. And, and the word for favor, it's a really interesting word because in favor with God and man, we, we have to understand favor means a winning quality or attractiveness that invites a favorable reaction. Basically, it means the person likes you. And so in favor with God, it means that he lived in a way that was pleasing to God. In favor with man, he lived in a way that was pleasing with those around him. He was easy to be around. People liked being around him. And this verse really just covers the whole of life that Jesus grew. And it's a reminder to us that Jesus is man and he's fully man and he went through the whole human experience. The situation in the temple reminds us that he is God and that God is his father we can learn so much even by that statement of how Jesus grew. Spiritual adults and the the last three things on your notes. Spiritual adults grow in wisdom by always learning and applying truth. By always learning and applying truth. It's not just head knowledge, it's putting it into practice. This comes from humility. You don't have it all together. I don't have it all together. 
there are things that I learn every week as I study, and I hope I just bring some of those to the, to the church family. There are ways God steps on my toes every week. He says, man, you're not being real mature in this area, huh, Ron? We need to have that sense of humility. The God of the universe learned. Just let that soak in for a minute. And that's the example we have to follow. Charles Spurgeon said, nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with your years. Isn't that true? You can go back and read a verse that you've read, studied before, and the Holy Spirit just reveals different things. Don't stop learning. Don't be arrogant and think you have it together. That's not a sign of maturity. That's a sign of childishness. Jesus also grew in in relationship with God. And so spiritually, we grow by nurturing a relationship with God, to be in favor with God, in which He is pleased with us. It's not just a rote set of duties. It's enjoying God. It's Him enjoying us. It's serving Him because we love Him. And finally, I think an area that we miss so many times in spiritual maturity, because it doesn't sound all that spiritual, but it's huge, Jesus grew socially, and we grow socially by having gracious relationships with others. Those last two, that's love God, love others, by the way. That's the greatest two commands. And and, and if we're to grow in favor with men, that means we can't be a harsh person to be around. We can't have sharp edges and get easily frustrated. Do people like being around me? That's a good question. Not that we're people pleasers and not that we sacrifice truth for that, but the idea of favor is that I like being around him. And sometimes I like being around people that will speak the truth in love. I don't like people that will speak the truth and not in love. See see what I'm saying? Honesty is not the question here. It's the manner in which we approach each other. And Jesus grew in those four areas. That's Jesus' childhood, all the way to adulthood. Next week, we jump into his ministry. We actually jump to John the Baptist and then his ministry. But my prayer for us is that we are a maturing congregation. And I don't say a mature congregation because we're not there yet. But that we're a maturing congregation. All the way from people in Mary and Joseph's situation with young children to those in Simeon and Anna's situation who have retired and are at the later stages of life that are still investing in the kingdom to the example of Jesus who grew and matured from a baby to a child to, as John described in this story, a boy. And we see his progression. As Paul told Timothy, let your growth be evident to all. Let your maturity be evident all. Let's commit to growing in those areas. Lord God, thank you for your word, for the snapshots we have of your childhood that show that, that you are an example to follow. Lord, help us be adults spiritually and not just play around at some things that make us feel like adults. But help us be responsible to you Be responsible in those little things. 
Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to stay engaged, to be encouraging those around us, Lord. Help us to be faithful in our relationship with you, in learning, and be faithful in loving others in our relationship with others. God, may we be like you and have the same mind in us that is ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.